Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. In the spring of 2003, March 2003, almost 20 years ago, it's hard to think of that, President Bush demanded that Saddam Hussein relinquish his power, give up his kingdom, and surrender. And of course, he was faced with an ultimatum. If you refuse, we will unleash what George W. Bush called a campaign of shock and awe. Do you remember those words? And on March 19th, we saw that come to full realization as the full-out invasion of Iraq by America, the United Kingdom, and Australia, and other allied forces Began that invasion, bombings, witnesses say the, the sky was lit up, as it were, with fire from the bombs, and there was little resistance. In fact, within a few short days, the whole kingdom fell. And you remember seeing the statues of Saddam Hussein being toppled over in the town squares by the people with this overwhelming display of power by the United States and other nations, crippling this wicked kingdom, leaving no doubt who did this. And what the demands were, bringing Saddam Hussein and his regime to an end decisively. And regardless of your stance on the Iraq war, we all know the mess that ensued after this. We saw the nature of nations, the nature of warfare, the nature of kingdoms and people. Making demands, giving ultimatums, making threats. Something or someone making a demand of someone else with a threat behind it, hoping that they will be able to follow through. Or face the humiliation of defeat. But what if this demand is being made from God? What if the threat being made, the promise to follow through on that threat, is coming from none other than God himself with unmatched power, ultimate, absolute sovereignty, who always and in every place gets his way. Who is any man, any nation, any kingdom, any creature to refuse him? From Psalm 2, our call to worship this morning, we saw that the nations rising up against God in rebellion. Let us break his bonds and let us get rid of this need for God. And what does God do in the heavens? He laughs in derision at the foolishness of men who think that they can defeat him. God always follows through with his promises. God always follows through with his threats. Physically, temporally in this time, in this life, but also spiritually and eternally in the next life. Today we see such a demand being made by God. In fact, we see a demand made repeatedly by God. The demand to Pharaoh that we've seen commanded to Moses, go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. We'll see what happens when God makes a demand and it is refused, leaving no doubt who did this, what his demands were, 
and his faithfulness to follow through, leaving no doubt who this is that did this. And that was God's plan all along, isn't it? So that they may know that I am the Lord. But we'll also see the promise that comes through repentance and faith in God, obedience to him. See that that wrath and the mercy of God are never all that far apart. The wrath and mercy of God are not enemies to be reconciled, but they are friends within the perfections and the attributes of God. And we'll face a question too this morning. You'll face a question. What does it mean to know the Lord? Look at Exodus chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 7 and then skip through some of the rest this morning. Exodus 7, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh, Let the people of Israel go out of this land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out my people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. This opening few verses is a preface to what is to come. There's a reminder of the demands as Pastor Matt led us off last week with that sort of um, ending credit scene that said this is what is to come, a reminder of what we've been through so far. Bringing us to this point, we have the the same at the beginning of this passage. A reminder of what God has commanded Pharaoh. Let my people go. Release my people Israel to worship me. There's a reminder of the obstacles that we face. The hardness of Pharaoh's heart. His refusal to obey. His foretold prophesied refusal to obey. And there's a reminder of what God will do about it. Chapter 7 verses 1 through 2. What did God command Pharaoh to do? Let my people go. In chapter 7, verse 3, what was the primary obstacle? Pharaoh's hardness of heart. There's an interesting side note there that we begin to see. Promised back in Exodus chapter 4, verse 21, wasn't it? When God said, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And as we go through the process today and we see these requests made to Pharaoh, we'll see different language that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and we'll see that direct action by the Lord where the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. But doesn't God want Pharaoh to listen? I mean, why why is this an obstacle in the first place? Couldn't God, if he can harden Pharaoh's heart, can't he just change Pharaoh's heart and make him obey and make him listen? Well, of course he could, and we're going to get to that. But God chooses not to do that because God chooses to let his power be displayed. Chapter 7, verse 5. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. There is God's reason. There is God's reason for this whole affair, for sending Moses and Aaron, for hardening Pharaoh's heart, doubling down on the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, so that in the end, when his shock and awe campaign is unleashed on Egypt, they will know without a doubt who made these demands. And what he's able to do about it. 
and they will see his faithfulness to do exactly as he says. So that in the end, when the people come out of Egypt, no glory will go to Pharaoh. No glory goes to Moses or Aaron or anyone else. All the glory will go to God alone so that they may know that I am the Lord. So that they may know that his hand brought out his people according to his promise. So as we continue reading today, we begin to see the signs. What we're going to call signs, the miracles, the plagues, the wonders. We'll just keep it simply at signs. The Egyptians were polytheistic had many, many, many gods. Beyond that, they were basically pantheistic, that anything and everything was some form or some incarnation of a god or had a god closely associated to it. And these gods, as was the case in most ancient mythology and religion, would fight it out from time to time with their signs and their wonders and their feats or their powers. They would have to duke it out for control of things, these false gods. And the strongest and most powerful would overcome the others with his signs and his wonders. And so when Moses comes to Pharaoh back in chapter 5 and verse 2, Pharaoh says, who is this Yahweh? I don't know who your God is. I know my gods. Pharaoh at this time would have considered himself to be an incarnation of one of the Egyptian gods. But Yahweh, I do not know. Who is this Yahweh? And in chapter 7, verse 9, we see an anticipation of that. When Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle. Prove that Yahweh is the true God by doing a sign, a wonder. My magicians, my priests can do wonders and miracles. They can prove that the gods are real. Who is your God? Give me proof. So Moses says, we'll start there. And as God instructed Moses in the wilderness when he was at the burning bush, go, throw down your staff, it becomes a serpent. He's already done this sign before the people of Israel. Remember the elders, they saw this same sign. The staff thrown down, it becomes a snake. And he picks it back up and it becomes a staff again. So we'll start there. This little foretaste, a pre-show of what is to come. In chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, let's just read there at the end of verse 9. Say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron, they obey. They went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent, just as God said it would, just as God had shown the people of Israel and Moses before them. But there's a problem because in verse 11, Pharaoh summoned his wise men, and sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. In other words, according to pagan trickery, a show, if you will, an illusion in the sight of Pharaoh, they were able to come and perform what seemed like the same sign. Aaron had thrown down his staff, it became a serpent, and here come the magicians with their secret arts, it says their magical powers, their trickery, they throw down their staffs, multiple staffs, and they too become serpents. And we say, well, what's the big deal? Where's the shock and awe in this? Seems relatively innocuous because it's able to be duplicated. Why does God do this? Why this sign? And why are these people able to duplicate it? In verse 12, we see that each man cast down his staff and they became serpent, serpents. But Aaron's staff 
swallowed up their staffs. You see, this is just an introduction of what is to come. This is a small little picture of the whole. Using your staff, God says. Remember when he told Moses, Oh God, I don't know if I can do this. And God says to Moses, remember the burning bush, chapter 4, verse 2. He says, what's in your hand? A staff. A shepherd's staff. Everyone has a staff. And God says, okay, well with you, humble shepherd, and your humble shepherd's staff, I will show my wonders in Egypt. Through unlikely means, I will display my power. So the magicians are able to duplicate this trick, but then from this humble staff, from this humble shepherd, this other snake eats the other snakes. And we say, okay, that's a nice touch, God. God has style, doesn't he? That's a nice touch. The snakes are swallowing up the other snakes. But in verse 13, it says that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. So is this a failure on God's part? Was this a failure on Moses and Aaron's part? Well, of course not. God has already said that he would harden Pharaoh's heart, and God did. God has already said that he wanted this to happen. Why? Chapter 7, verse 3. So that he might show his power to all of Egypt. And in this introductory sign, the staff becoming a serpent and swallowing up the other serpents, listen, we see the entire story of the rest of the book of Exodus. God's power and God's might swallowing up this pagan kingdom and their pagan hard-hearted king by his own might and sovereignty. This is the story of the Exodus right here in this first sign. This is God's story. And it's the introduction to what is to come. So now we come to what we know as the plagues. And you read through all the text here that we're going to look at today, you won't see the word plague. It's a word that we've sort of inserted there to help us understand what this is. In fact, the the word plague refers to, literally, the bacterial infection that happened back in the Middle Ages that killed over like half or three quarters of Europe, like millions of people. That's what it literally refers to, the plague. We've just taken that word and inserted it here because it makes sense of what we see. It could refer to any other infectious disease spread from person to person. And as we read through the signs today, we're going to see that that might very well have happened and the resulting of the death of some of these Egyptians. But something to think of as we look at these plagues is to remember that they are signs, signs that point to something else, not an end in themselves, not purely judgment, not purely punishment, but they are a sign pointing to something. And what are they pointing to? Well, chapter 7, verse 5, that God is alone the Lord. And think about the aftermath of what would have happened here with these plagues. And you know the plagues, we're going to go through them. The water turning to blood and the fish are dead and the frogs and the livestock and the boils, flies and gnats and all the rest. You know that beyond those plagues, there would have been massive sickness, massive disease, massive problems caused by these things. And so later in the Old Testament, when God reminds Israel of the, quote, diseases that he brought upon the Egyptians... We might not see too many diseases in the actual nine plagues, but in their aftermath, there would have been many, many, many diseases. So we're thinking not just about these nine plagues, but the aftermath and the ruin after those nine plagues, bringing this decimation and devastation to Egypt. As we look through the plagues, we're going to see a pattern with some variation here and there, and I'll point those out when we come there. Number one, God instructs Moses and Aaron 
to go to Pharaoh. He tells them what to say. Number two, Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh with God's instructions. Number three, at times there's a warning given before the plague arrives. In other words, I've told you what God said. You listen or else this will happen. Number four, at least for the first couple plagues, the magicians again are able to duplicate the sign. But even if not, and even once they can't duplicate them anymore, Pharaoh still hardens his heart as God has willed. And so we see that all along we have this pattern. They're instructed, they go, they warn, the plague comes. The magicians sometimes can duplicate, later they cannot. Either way, Pharaoh hardens his heart every single time. This is intentionally part of God's story to reveal his glory again so that they may know that he is the Lord. Let's look at the first plague in chapter 7, verses 14 through 25, the turning of the water to blood. Look at chapter 7, verse 14. There's a reminder of what we're dealing with here. The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. There's that pattern. Verse 15, go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him. Take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And what does he say down in verse 17? He says, strike the water. And thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn to blood. So God says, go to Pharaoh. Reminder, he's not going to listen to you. And as a sign of my judgment upon him in Egypt, take your staff, strike the water of the Nile, and it shall become blood. Have to understand that the Nile River in the middle of Egypt is the source of Egypt's life. It is the source of their agriculture, therefore the source of their livestock and their livelihood. It is, as they would understand it, life itself. In fact, the Nile was honored as a god and was associated with many other gods. Again, pantheistic society. It doesn't have to be that the Nile is God or the Nile is this god. It is associated with many gods, including the, Greek, the, the Egyptian god Hapi, the Egyptian god Osiris, the Egyptian god Subek. And so when the Nile is flowing through the middle of the kingdom and annually it floods, there is the source of Egypt's livestock, livelihood, agriculture, crops, everything depends on the Nile and the flooding. And so in the Egyptian's mind, everything depends on these false gods. Yet here is this shepherd from the wilderness, a slave from the Hebrews, with a staff, a piece of wood, striking the Egyptian deity of the Nile, striking it with a stick. I want to ask you the question, though, who struck the Nile? Did Aaron? Did Moses? Look at chapter 7, verse 25. Seven full days passed after the Lord struck the Nile. In verse 18, as Moses and Aaron strike the Nile, as God himself strikes the Nile, the source of Egypt's life, the symbol of deity. In verse 18, the fish in the Nile shall die and the Nile will stink and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. So what is the result? Devastation. Rotting fish, a smell, an inability to drink and bathe. 
because all the water has turned to blood. In fact, in this passage, there are 20 mentions of either the Nile or water because the plague extends from the Nile to the canals and the streams and the creeks and even the water that is in the vessels in the Egyptians' homes is turned into blood. 13 of those times referred to the Nile. Everything else shows us that all the other water in Egypt was turned to blood. And the gods of the Egyptians are humiliated with what seems to be to the Egyptians a literal bleeding wound caused by a shepherd and a slave with a piece of wood. Enough, you you would think Pharaoh would say. Enough, go, get out of my sight. Except in chapter 7, verse 22, by their secret arts, the magicians are able to duplicate this sign as well. And Pharaoh's heart remains hardened. He does not listen, and he does not obey. The second plague we read about is that of the frogs, beginning in chapter 8, verses 1 through 15. We follow the pattern. In chapter 8, verse 1, the Lord says to Moses, there's the instruction, go into Pharaoh, says to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Pharaoh's refusal is implied and the sign is foretold. What's going to happen when he refuses you, you shall bring with your staff frogs upon the earth. So in verse 3, what happens? The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and in the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come upon you and on your people and all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But, again, the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So we have this pattern. The instruction by the Lord, Moses and Aaron go, let my people go. If you don't, this will happen. He refuses, and of course, here come the frogs. Now, at this point, people begin to think, well, maybe these are just natural occurrences. Maybe, as I've seen in too many documentaries, some volcano exploded out in the middle of the Mediterranean and and caused the water to appear red, even though it wasn't actual blood. And it polluted the water, and then from the polluted water came all the frogs. And then, of course, when the frogs die, here come the flies and that. I I just want to say maybe, but, but this is definitely with a supernatural hand behind it. God certainly uses natural secondary means to accomplish his purposes and if that's how he chose uh, so chose to do these miracles he did but they were miracles nevertheless timed exactly to his sovereign will according to Moses and Aaron's actions in the land of Egypt so no matter what the documentaries say to try to explain this away in a natural way we're going to see how that kind of falls apart later anyway you say okay whatever if that's how the Lord chose to do it that's fine but the Lord did it and in this instance These frogs overtake the land of Egypt. But did Pharaoh listen? No. Verses 8 through 15, we see another pattern emerge. And that Pharaoh in verse 8 seems like he's going to give a little. Look at verse 8. Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me. And from the people, and I will let the people go sacrifice to the Lord. And so we think, well, okay, well, that's the end. They only took the two plagues and then the one sign of the serpent. Pharaoh seems ready to give. He tries to bargain. 
But then he probably remembers, wait a minute, the, the, the magicians in verse 7 already duplicated this trick. And in verse 13, when God removes the frogs, verse 14, it says, they gathered them together in heaps and the land stank. In verse 15, when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them. So he seems like he's going to give in. But the magicians are able to duplicate the sign, seemingly. And then, by Moses' prayer, the frogs are actually removed, and Pharaoh says, okay, well, it's all over anyway, so never mind, you can't go. That brings us to the third plague in chapter 8, verses 16 through 19, that of the gnats. And I want you to notice that we've moved from water to land. We've moved from the Nile and all the streams and all the canals and the turning to blood and the fish stank and the frogs were coming out. And now we move into the land. In verse 16, part of the pattern, the Lord instructs Moses and Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. So we went from striking the water, the source of life, this God of life to the Egyptians, to striking the ground, a secondary source of life. There's the livestock, there's the crops, there's the agriculture. And what we have here with this infestation of gnats could be any small, winged, biting insects, which caused many scholars to think maybe this is an infestation or a plague of mosquitoes. We don't have terrible mosquitoes here. I've lived in Florida and on the coast of North Carolina, and we have seen mosquitoes, okay? Now, big mosquitoes aren't the problem, okay? You see a big mosquito, it's just a big mosquito. It's going to bite the same, it's going to feel the same, it's going to itch the same. Where the problem is is when there are lots of small mosquitoes. You ever stepped out into just some standing water somewhere, and you just see a swarm of mosquitoes going at it? You don't want to be anywhere near that, be part of that. When we first moved to Florida, I remember setting a, setting a fire, that sounded bad, starting a fire in the, in the backyard, had some kids over, I was a youth pastor, sitting around, had my shorts, my flip-flops in like, you know, late November. I remember the next day, I had like 30 mosquito bites just up my leg, and, and Jessica had just given birth, and we had the spray, and so I was just spraying my legs and my feet down every day with that stuff. That's an infestation of mosquitoes. And if you know that pain and that itch, think about that multiplied. An exceedingly great amount, and that was this plague in the land of Egypt. But does Pharaoh budge? Does Pharaoh move? Verse 19. Even when the Egyptian magicians say to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. We can't do this. We don't know how to do this, Pharaoh. I can't duplicate this. This must be God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them. Watch this. As the Lord said. The Lord said, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. The Lord said, he will say no, so that I may show my glory. And here we have that continued. That brings us to the fourth plague, that of the flies, in chapter 8, verses 20 through 32. Again, we have the same pattern. In verse 20, there's instruction. Rise up early, present yourself to Pharaoh. The last part of verse 20, tell him, let my people go. 
In verse 21, it's kind of new to this plague. There's a warning here. Or else he tells them what he's going to do if they do not let the people go. And in verse 24, we see the follow through. The Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and his servants' houses throughout all the land of Egypt. Look at this. That the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Egypt was ruined with the swarm of flies. Think of the sickness and the disease and the filth being spread from the rotting fish and the rotting frogs and the gnats that are already there and the festering boils and everything that's going to come. Think of the devastation this would bring upon Egypt. We see something new here, though, in verse 22. Something new introduced into the pattern. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there. That you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. How does God intend to show the Egyptians that he is the Lord according to this new part of the pattern? Well, while Egypt suffers this terrible plague of flies, the land of Goshen, where the Israelites are, where the Hebrews are, will be spared, untouched. And this will remain part of the plagues from here on out, showing God's difference between how he treats the Egyptians and how he treats the Hebrews. And again, here is that sign that we're not dealing with just a purely natural event. Something else is going on here supernaturally, and God makes a distinction. We come back into this pattern with Pharaoh in verse 25. He seems he's going to budge. He calls Moses and Aaron in. He says, okay, go sacrifice to your God. What does he say, though? Within the land. Okay, okay, Moses, go sacrifice. Except stay here. (laughs) Stay here and do it. Now Moses knows this is not what has been commanded by God. And I don't know if Moses is being sincere in his excuse, but he tells Pharaoh, no, we can't stay here. Our sacrifices are abominable to you Egyptians. We can't stay here and do this. I think Moses intends for the people, as God had said, not to stay and do this, but to leave. So, Pharaoh capitulates maybe a little more. Look in verse 28. Pharaoh said, okay, I will let you go. Sacrifice the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you must not go very far away. You see Pharaoh almost coming to the brink of obedience. Almost obeying and agreeing and giving in. Okay, go, but you got to stay here. Moses says, no, that won't work. Okay, go, but not very far away. He remembers, though, to this point, the magicians have duplicated the trick, except for the one before this. And even though he is tempted to budge more, I think he's willing to gamble, to take the chance that this is going to go away. And he says, Moses, okay, maybe with his fingers crossed behind his back, just make the flies go away. So Moses agrees in verse 28 to make the flies go away. Plead for me. Pharaoh says in verse 28, make the flies go away. And as they do, in verse 30, Moses agrees. He went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, from his people. Not one remained. And so you think maybe Pharaoh's about to give in. Verse 32, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time and did not let the people go. The same pattern Almost there, bargaining a little bit. Please take away the flies. And when the punishment is gone, changes his mind and reneges on the whole thing and refuses. 
The fifth plague is that of the livestock in chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. We see the same pattern starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. Followed with the warning in verse 2. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, Moses promises that there will come a massive death amongst their livestock. In verse 6, we see the follow-through of this. The next day, the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died. But the people, not one of the livestock of the people of Israel, died. The Lord promises. The Lord follows through. All the livestock of the Egyptians dies. None of the livestock of the Hebrews dies. And we think maybe this would be enough for Pharaoh to give in. Maybe the first thing with the flies, and we had the flies and they didn't. Maybe that was just a fluke. That was just a coincidence. It just happened that way. But God is not really in this, Pharaoh thinks. So he says in chapter 9, verse 7, he sent sent people to, to go and check. See if any of the Hebrews' livestock are dead. In chapter 7, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. Will this be enough for Pharaoh? No. It says, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. So we come to the sixth plague. And you remember, thinking this whole time, every time Pharaoh says no, every time Pharaoh's heart is hardened, this is God working in and through that disobedience to show his glory one more time. And God says, I have more at my sleeve. I have more to come. And with the plague of the boils, we see a change. We've moved from the water. We've moved from the land. We've moved from the beast. And now we're moving to man. This time there's no request. At least we don't read one. We don't read a request. We don't see an instruction to go to Pharaoh. We just see go to Moses and Aaron. Take soot in your hands from one of the the, the ovens there in the palace. Throw it into the air. And it will become boils on the people of Israel. Encroaching from the water to the land to the beast and now to the men. And look at chapter 9 verse 11. These magicians who duplicated the first couple signs but haven't been able to do so since. Not only are they unable to duplicate this sign but in verse 11 it says the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. They're debilitated by this sign now not just unable to perform it not just unable to duplicate it by their trickery but now they themselves are debilitated and handicapped because of the work of God and the threat is moving closer and closer to Pharaoh this time in verse 12 the Pharaoh doesn't even intend to bargain just outright refusal the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh there's that language and he did not listen to them Well, this has been the case all along, though, hasn't it? Some people try to make a big deal about, well, Pharaoh hardened his heart first, and then the Lord hardened his heart. God told them from the very beginning in chapter 4, verse 21, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will say no. So whether it's Pharaoh doing it, or the Lord doing it, or that middle sort of passive, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, it was the Lord's action and the Lord's will, so that his power and his glory might be displayed. There's no question that this is the hand of God. 
Pharaoh continues to refuse. So we come to the seventh plague in chapter 9, verses 13 through 35. We have a similar pattern to what we've seen amongst the rest, but we have an intensity. There's an intensifying nature in the explanation. Look at chapter 9, verse 14. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself, Pharaoh, along with your water, along with your land, and your people, and your servants, and your magicians. The plagues are coming now to you. And I love how God addresses all the elephants in the room at this point. Look at verse 15. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You hear what God says? Pharaoh, I don't have to do this with you. We don't have to have nine plagues or the serpents or Passover. We don't have to have any of that. I could have taken you out already. But here's why I raised you up, Pharaoh. And here's why I keep hardening your heart. And here's why you keep saying no to me. So that I might display my glory in you. Verse 17. For you are still exalting yourself against my people. And will not let them go. And God says, you are about to find out that there is none like me in all the earth. Because, Pharaoh, this is the exact reason you were born. To say no. And so that my glory might be displayed in you. Can we even begin to wrap our minds around this? That there was such a kingdom as Egypt... That the Hebrews were enslaved there for centuries. And that this singular Pharaoh, according to the sovereign purposes of God, was raised up for one thing and one thing only. So that Yahweh could display his power and his might for all to see. To bring glory to himself in the salvation of his people. But also to bring glory to himself in the devastation of Egypt. Look at that devastation in verse 24. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail. Very heavy hail such as never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. That is devastation. That is unheard of destruction. And so verse 27, similar pattern. Pharaoh seems ready to give in. It even says that he confesses to sin. This time I have sinned. And he offers to let the people go. But Moses is no fool. Verse 30, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. Pharaoh to this point has been willing to budge, seemingly willing to bargain, to let the people go, changing his mind, coming back. And Moses says, I've already seen this to this point. The Lord told me how this was going to go down, and you do not yet fear the Lord. And he was right. Verse 34, when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart. Verse 35, so the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go. Moses is no fool, and this continues to go on, as God had said. So we come to the eighth plague, the locusts. It's one of the longer narratives there in chapter 10, verses 1 through 20. We have the same pattern. Go into Pharaoh, tell him, I've hardened his heart. 
We're reminded up front what God intends to do here, to humiliate the gods of Egypt, to humiliate Pharaoh, to subdue the Egyptians so that they may know, chapter 10, verse 2, that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I've dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them. Watch this. So that you may know that I am the Lord. Now we see these double intentions, don't we? God does all these things so that the Egyptians in their devastation will know that Yahweh is the Lord. But he does all these things for his people so that they may know that he is the Lord in their deliverance. And in verses 4 through 6, we have the warning of the locusts. Behold, tomorrow, verse 4, I will bring locusts into your country, verse 5, and they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land. And they shall, they shall eat what is left to you after the hail, and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the fields. This devastating, life-altering, life-ending plague of locusts will devastate the land. So much in verse 7 that when it happens, or when it's about to happen, Pharaoh's own servants say to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go. Do you not understand that Egypt is ruined? Pharaoh's own people, his own servants, possibly the magicians, still scratching their boils, come to Pharaoh and say, let's let's end this already. Can't you just let these people go? Don't you see that the land is ruined? And so in verse 8, Pharaoh seems to, to give. He says, okay, go. But which ones are going? And Moses almost, I can imagine a scoff. He says in verse 9, we will go with our young and our old, with our sons and daughters, with our flocks and herds. In other words, Moses says, we're all going, Pharaoh. All of us are going to go. Don't you understand this by now? And it seems as if Pharaoh is going to give in. Pharaoh is going to let them go. He's willing to bargain. Who's going to go? Moses says, we're all going. Verse 11, Pharaoh comes even back a little further. He says, okay, only the men can leave. Only the men can leave. So, because Pharaoh still hardens his heart and still refuses and is trying to play games with God, God unleashes the locusts in verses 12 through 15, and they destroy everything. And again, in verse 16, Pharaoh says, Oh, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. He says, Take away the locusts. Take away the plague. And I'll let you go. Until verse 20. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. So we come to the last of today's plagues, the plague of darkness. Chapter 10, verses 21 through 29. We come to the last of these nine plagues. No request, no warning. In chapter 10, verse 22, the darkness comes. Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt Three days. Except in verse 23, Goshen had light. And so verse 24, Pharaoh again seems to be giving up. Go serve the Lord. Your little ones may go with you. Only let your flocks and herds remain behind. Again, budging a little, but not giving in all the way. And when Moses refuses that offer in verse 27 again, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And in verse 28... Pharaoh says to Moses, never come before me again, 
because on the day you see my face, you shall die. And verse 29, Moses says, you're exactly right. I will not present myself again to you in this way. There will be no more asking, no more requesting, no more bargaining. You either obey or you do not. Pharaoh said to Moses, this is your last chance. And Moses says, no, you've got that wrong. This is your last chance. What a fitting sign as we come to the end of these nine plagues. Darkness. A, a true sign of the Egyptians' experience. Physical, temporal darkness. But what about that deeper darkness that is there? In their rebellion, in their rejection, in Pharaoh's pride and hardness of heart. Unbelief. The darkness and the blindness that affects all of us in our sin. A darkness inside Pharaoh, a darkness inside humanity. The New Testament points us to words like darkness, sickness, brokenness, death. This is where Egypt is. This is where Pharaoh is. I wonder if it's where you are today. So we ask the question, now what? What's this all for? Pharaoh's still not listening. The people are still in bondage. Moses can't come back anymore unless he wants to die, so, so nothing. God has brought Pharaoh in Egypt to this point in his own divine sovereign will, hardening Pharaoh's heart, giving him over to his disobedience, not to distract from his glory, but to magnify his glory in the humiliation of Egypt and their false gods and the Nile and their land and their animals and their magicians all the way down to Pharaoh himself. Now we know that there is one more plague yet to come and it will be the nail in the coffin. But for now, to these people who don't know that story yet, to Moses and Aaron, maybe they think this is a dead end. Pharaoh keeps saying no. He keeps hardening his heart. Where is this going? It's going exactly as God has planned he said in verse, chapter 4, verse 21, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. In chapter 3, verse 19, he said, He will only let you go if compelled by a mighty hand. In chapter 7, verse 3, he says, I'm going to unleash my signs to do exactly that. In chapter 4, verse 23, he still won't budge until I kill his firstborn. Now, we know what is coming. We know that is coming exactly as God has said. Did you notice through the course of the narrative today how often God uses Moses' staff just as he said he was going to do? Did you notice Aaron's role beginning to fade as Moses steps into what God called him for all along? To show us that he is faithful to his plan and his promise to bring glory to himself so that Egypt and Israel all might know that he is the Lord. There's no need to try and match up each plague to some Egyptian idol. That's been done. That may be the case, but who cares? All of Egypt is decimated. Whatever gods they think there are and whatever parts of creation they think are gods have been destroyed and laid bare before the one true living God. So that all the people might know that he is the Lord. And the question for you today, do you know that he is the Lord? There's discomfort in this story for the modern church, isn't there? Much of the modern church has abandoned talk of God's wrath and God's anger. 
Sadly, the gospel is often presented as a non-angry God who isn't bothered much by your sin, who thinks you're pretty great just as you are, and just wants you to be better. But that is not the picture we see in the Bible. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 tells us the reality of our condition. You are dead in your sins and trespasses. And Romans 1 verse 18 tells us what God is bringing against that sin. The wrath of God. And Romans 6 23 makes sure we understand what is coming. The wages of sin is death. See, the modern church, we think we're past that. That was the Old Testament God. That was some bad stuff. That won't happen again, right? You're partially right. That won't happen again. Next time it will be worse. We read Revelation chapter 6 verse 16 as the kings and the slaves and the rich and the poor all ran to the mountains crying for the rocks to fall on them to save them from the wrath of God and of the Lamb on that last day. And so maybe you're here asking today, well, what do we even do with this kind of threat? What do we do with this? I want you to hear the mercy and the grace that is extended to you if you will listen and obey. The command for you today is do not harden your hearts. How often we find ourselves with the spirit of Pharaoh. Hearing the word of the Lord? No question. You're sitting here today hearing the word of the Lord. And some of us are more concerned about what time I will be done than hearing the words of God. We hear, we listen, we've absorbed, we've taken in, some of us, all our lives. And perhaps we've, we've tiptoed towards obedience and repentance only to draw back, to renege when the pressure eases. Some of you find yourself sometimes bargaining with God, don't we? That's how unbelievers work. God, if you'll save me from this, I'll live for you. God, if you'll save me from this, I'll live for you. Maybe you've even done that. That's the heart of Pharaoh. A heart so hardened. Maybe this morning you're not even tiptoeing to God. You're just outright rejecting him. Maybe today you have no inkling of pretending obedience. You're just outright refusing obedience for salvation to profess your faith in baptism, in some part of obedience in your Christian life, in some sin you're battling, in some calling God has given you. The warning to you today is Hebrews 3.15. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Hear, listen, obey. Unbeliever, my question for you today is, what keeps you there in your unbelief? If you're not a Christian, you haven't come to faith in Christ, what keeps you there? The illusion of time? I'm young. I have much of life to live. I can do this later. The pleasures of sin? You're not ready to give up those fleshly lusts just yet. Everybody wants to go to heaven. Nobody wants to go now. The foolishness of pride, worried what others will think, what others will do if you submit your life to Jesus. 
And you say, maybe you're an unbeliever here today, and you say, well, maybe if God would just give me a sign, if he would just give me a miracle, if he would just prove that he's real, if he would just prove that all this is real, I would believe. Give me a sign, God. Did that help Pharaoh? Did it help the Pharisees? Jesus said in Luke 16, verse 31, even if someone rises from the dead, they will not believe. Because you're only believing on account of the signs and the miracles. But that is not true saving faith. Today, unbelievers, listen to me. Do not harden your hearts. Believe and obey because judgment is coming. And it won't be Moses with his staff to bring nine plagues upon you. But it will be the wrath of God and the Lamb and no one will escape. No one except those who have found a refuge. Those who, Paul says in Romans chapter 5 verse 9, have been justified by his blood, made one with him. The imperative for you today is to know that he is the Lord. And if you will know the Lord, you must know the one he has sent. Matthew eleven twenty seven. Jesus reminds us, no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. If you will know the Lord, you must know the Lord Jesus Christ. God stopped at nothing to utterly humiliate Egypt, ripping down her false gods one by one, down to Pharaoh himself. And listen to me, he will not share his glory with anyone else. On that day, when his judgment is unleashed and his glory is revealed, it won't be Pharaoh, a false god, Muhammad, the Buddha, any other prophet, preacher, or teacher, or religionist at his right hand. It will be the one and only Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And you have two choices here today. Number one, you can bow before him now for salvation. Number two, you can bow before him then to your damnation. Today, hear his voice. Submit. No bargaining. No reneging. No hard heart. No falling back into disobedience. Repent and believe so that you may come out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his glorious light. Know that he is the Lord. By knowing the Lord, Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.